Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Lurie. I'm a sex-positive psychotherapist with a specialty in trauma, and my co-host is Sunny Megatron, who is an award-winning sex educator with a specialty in kink. Because we intend to have some kinky guests on in the near future, today's episode is going to be a continuation of our discussion about kink from the previous episode, just between Sunny and myself. Now, Sunny has endless accomplishments across her career, but here are a few related specifically to kink. Sunny began teaching about BDSM way back in 2010. Her area of expertise is in the soft skills, which center around things like ethics, cultivating self-awareness, and strategies for effective communication. She received a Frost Certificate of Gratitude in 2020, honoring her service to the kink community. She was voted Ex-Biz Sexpert of the Year in 2021 and Kinkley's Sex Blogging Superhero in 2017. Her alternative sexuality-focused podcast, American Sex, was awarded the ASEC Podcast Award of 2020. Sunny also creates curriculum about BDSM for sexuality professionals. Some of her most recent projects include designing and teaching the BDSM unit for a well-known sex educator certification program, plus a lesson for the Sexual Health Alliance's Kink and Ford Certification Program for therapists and other care professionals. Sunny's first book, Customizable Kink, A Strategic Guide to Erotic Play, is scheduled to be released in 2022. So exciting. I can't wait. And as for myself, I've been doing therapy since 2003, but I've specialized in the kink, non-monogamous, sex worker, and LGBTQIA plus communities since 2011. Now, before we get started with our kinky discussion, let's clarify when sadistic or masochistic behaviors might be diagnosable or more indicative that someone is being abused or abusing others. According to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, sexual sadism or sexual masochism are sexual interests, preferences, fantasies, urges, and behaviors outside the norm but they are only diagnosable if the fantasies and sexual urges are causing clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, or in the case of sadism, if the individual has acted out these urges upon someone without getting their consent. Here are a few differences between BDSM and abuse. BDSM follows established rules. Abuse has no mutually agreed upon rules. BDSM is negotiated between partners for the safety of all partners involved, and there is always consent. Abuse is not negotiated, and the abused has not consented. BDSM is practiced for mutual pleasure. Abuse is used to terrorize, frighten, and control. Within BDSM, recipients use safe words to stop unwanted play. Within an abusive relationship, the abuse has no easily accessed or safe means to stop the abuse. 
And now I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. If you feel like you are being abused, please get help. Call a friend, therapist, or an emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. Okay, Sunny. So it's so good to get back and have this conversation for another episode. I mean, our last episode, we talked about so many good things, right? We talked about how we got into kink. We talked about the different things that lit us up. We talked about neurobiology. We talked about subspace. But we have so much more to talk about, don't we? Absolutely. I could talk all day because it's my favorite subject, as I said. So where should we start? The world is our our Ball gag. Where should we start? (laughs) I I have to say that I feel so, you know, blessed to have a co-host that's not only a fountain of knowledge regarding kink, but just so hilarious and and that can make the subject that is scary for so many people not scary. And also, you know, in my opinion, as a psychotherapist, I think that you have like one of the most ethical lenses. Like, it's interesting because you've gone, you have gone so far with kink You've gone very down, very much down the kink rabbit hole, and yet you can currently hold the space that it is so ethical and logical and understandable for everyone. And I think that's a a wonderful combination. So you end up benefiting everyone from someone who hasn't even gone down this path to people that are kinktastic, you know? I think that really reflects, you know, not just my teaching style or whatever. It's how I view kink, my philosophy on kink. I truly believe that we as a collective, whatever us kinky people are, focus too much on those hard skills. Like I want to learn how to flog. I want to learn how to spank right. I want to learn how to do all the sex stuff. And we don't focus on what's really important, which are those soft skills, the ethics, the self-awareness, the you know mutual respect and well-being of our partners. That's really what the kink is about. It's cultivating the, the vulnerability and the empathy and the connectedness and the self-understanding. That's what we're doing. It really doesn't matter that we're throwing a flogger or that we're spanking or that, you know, that's just our tool with which we do all of these emotional, really cool brain and body things with. Yeah. Why do you think that sometimes gets lost a little bit, you know, or glossed over? You know, I, one, blame the media because that's what we see. We want to see the flashy, sexy outfits and the, the, the hitting and the things that are physical because it's not entertaining if you portray emotional vulnerability on film. Like, how exciting is that? No one wants to see that. You can't really see that as easily. So it's the sensationalism from the media that's a part of it. I think another part of it is just our fear of sex and sexuality that comes from our society. And I also think that it is partially the way our society looks at sex. You know, I oftentimes say we have a very puritanical view of sex and sexuality in this country, and that's absolutely true. We are terrified of sexuality. There are a lot of contradictions and incorrect stereotypes and slut shaming and what does this mean about me? So anytime that we have to 
face and understand our own sexuality on a very on-the-level, honest capacity, we don't know how to do that. Like, we have this block when it comes to sex. Like, oh, sex is scary. I don't know anything about it. All I know is I've learned all of these untrue myths and, oh, what does it mean about me? And we clam up and freak out. And our ability to think logically about our emotions that are tied to that or just what we're doing sort of goes out the window because we're completely freaked out because, oh my God, it's sex. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me when I was a kid, for whatever reason, I don't see this type of thing anymore. But back when I was a kid, you'd see these infomercials where it's like, take this pill and you'll lose weight in your sleep, you know, or, or whatever. And it kind of feels like that's what a lot of people want. They, they think that they can, they want to hear that you can just jump into kink without having to figure out the ethics or, or figure out your boundaries. You know, they tend to, some people want to find that easy pill, you know, that allow them to just jump into kink and they don't realize that actually that's a potentially dangerous way to go. Like that's potentially a rougher ride, not an easier ride. And it, it really mirrors sex also. You know, it's like we see porn, we see the flashy, incorrect stereotypes of what sex and sexuality is from the media and the movies we watch and all of these things. And then when we jump into our first sexual relationships as adults, we just try to be as like sexy and porny and stereotypical as as possible. You know, like, oh, I'm going to buy some edible underwear and some whipped cream and my sex life is going to be great. And it's like, that's not really what sex is all about. It's about the emotional connection. It's about the intimacy. It's about knowing what you want and cultivating something together that satisfies both or all, depending on how many people are there, partners, wants and needs and limits. But even in vanilla sex, we completely miss that point. And when we miss that point with kink, you know, it's dangerous enough when we miss that point with vanilla sex, but it's even more dangerous to your point when we miss that with kink because we're putting ourselves in much more dangerous and much more vulnerable positions. Yeah, which brings me to kind of what I hoped we could focus on for either part of this episode or maybe the whole episode, which is some of the following questions like, what kink internet trends do you see that are incorrect? What trends are like runaway trains of, in, you know, misinformation and, you know, what you would like to rewrite? Well, I'm working on rewriting it now. This is like an unintentional shameless plug. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why I'm writing my book on kink, because I do not see what I think I should see anywhere out there, whether it's on the internet, whether it's in some of the books that we say, oh, these are the classic BDSM books you must read when you first get into kink. Or, I'm just not seeing that. And not only am I not seeing that, I am seeing other things that are dangerously misleading. So yeah, hopefully that'll end. <laughs> hopefully in 2022, if I get my writing done, we'll see. I have a question for you along these lines. Uh, you know, I've sometimes heard people in the kink community say that back in the day, and usually they're kind of indicating maybe the, the 70s, I guess, they indicate that back then, like way before Fifty Shades of Grey, that the kink community was smaller. And because it was smaller, 
it could self-police better and that kind of like healthy kink rules were clearer and it was kind of a simpler world that had less harm. Do you think that's true at all? No, it is not true. And I've heard this from the gay leather men that were there. You know, even my uncle who, you know, he was there with the first gay bars in Chicago. He was there in the leather scene. If you listen to some of the the folks that are still around from that era who are kink educators, like Race Bannon, you'll hear, that's a bunch of bullshit. Here's how it happened. The kink community lends, I guess, what it has to the gay male community coming out of World War II, et cetera. And then also during the 80s and the AIDS crisis, the leather community as we know it now that includes more than just gay men, but originally it was queer women, and now there's a lot of straight folks, and it's pretty much for everybody at this point. A lot of folks really mythologize, I guess, that time as like, Oh, we had all these rules and we earned our leather and a master must always start as a slave and work their way up. And this is tradition. Our our gay leather forefounders bequeathed upon it. Like, I don't know where this came from, but none of it's true. It reminds me how some older people, like sometimes, I don't know, boomers will talk about the 1950s and this really... I, you know, idolizing way. And again, it's, it's bullshit. You know, as a, a therapist that works with people of all ages, people will tell me, you know, I was abused and I grew up in the 50s. Why didn't anybody help me? My pediatrician knew, my next door neighbor knew. Why didn't anybody help me? And it's just like, like in the 1950s, it was just like there was all this silence and like people could lie to themselves and say that there was safety in the silence, but it was all bullshit. And I I imagine there's something similar, perhaps, in the maybe the 70s. I think that it's sociology. It's human nature. Of course, we want a good mythos, some kind of the legend, the lore of the tradition. It feels good to have tradition. You know, we are a group of quote unquote misfits or perverts or deviants or whatever people on the outside call us. And we want something to cling to. We want belonging. We want our own pillars, our own values. And that is good and that's commendable. But somehow that steamrolled and game of telephoned itself into, well, back in the day, tradition that really didn't happen. But that doesn't mean we can't have values and we can't have our own real legends and lore that really happened in our community. I also think that it's partially human nature, partially a control thing. People want to be right. My way is right because it is tradition. So you all must be uh, kinksters just like I am. And you must wear your leather in the traditional way because we are right. And it's like, cool, if you realize that, you know, there's some folks that are traditionalists that realize none of that lore is true, but it feels good. What do you think is a bit of the truth about the past history? Like maybe just going back to maybe the 70s. Okay, so like part of the past history, like some of it is just like, 
that didn't happen. Some of it is it kind of happened, but it got twisted along the way. So one of those things is in the leather community, which is a subsect of the larger kinky community, it said that it is tradition that you are gifted your first pieces of leather by people in the community. Maybe you've earned them because you've been of service to your community. And that's commendable and awesome. And a lot of people do go by that today. But the lore says, well, we do this because our gay forefounders back in World War II, that's how they got their leather. You had to earn your leather and be gifted. You couldn't buy your own leather. That's a bunch of BS. That's not what happened. You know, there are people still alive that were, they're like, no, we bought our own leather. That was not a thing. Where it came from was in the 1980s when a lot of the gay leather men were dying from AIDS. Their families would come in to their homes, not let their partners and lovers have access to the homes that they shared or have their partner's belongings after they passed away. So oftentimes there would be people from the community that would go to that person's house who passed away, who would gather up all of the important things that the family would just balk at and throw in a dumpster. And they would then give it to the best friends, the other people in the community, like this is from your leather brother who passed away and now this piece of leather is yours or or whatnot. That's where that tradition came from. And that's beautiful. And if people want to live right now and they say, I'm in a community where we believe all of our leather must be earned. Cool. Like no one's telling you not to do that, but please don't make up some lore about World War II and things that didn't happen as to why you do this. So, you know, through that sort of, we call it in the kink community, in a lot of communities, like the one true wayisms. This is the way you must wear your leather. This is the way you must act if you're a dominant. This is the way you must learn kink. This is the way you must da 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 da. All of those rules are BS. If you want to do that in your personal life, cool. If you want to adhere to those traditionalist rules that were kind of made up, fine. But don't insist other people do that. And because of that, that attitude, that insistence on the one true wayism because of tradition, we have within the kink community a lot of these rules, you know, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that, that are BS. And it keeps people from finding what their own true kinky path is. Like my tagline that I've been saying forever and basically the basis of all of my kinking my, or all of my teaching and my kinky philosophy is kink is customizable. That all of the rules that you think are associated with kink, which are those traditional one true wayisms, you must act this way and that way, they're not rules at all. They're not written in stone. You don't have to adhere to those. The only rule that you have to adhere to in kink is consent. Everything else you make up yourself, whether you want to earn your leather or not, whether you want to act a certain way as a submissive, a dominant, whether you want to play out a role as a service submissive in this particular way, that's up to you. It's choose your own adventure and you make your own rules. And I think that's where a lot of the kink stereotypes have come from, not just from the outside vanilla community in the media and the movies and Fifty Shades of Grey, A lot of that comes within the core of the kink community itself. 
And that's a problem. This is going to sound a little bit tangential, but this this is what, what you're saying kind of reminds me of. When I was like 23 to 25, that's when I got my first master's degree in business. And I remember them saying to us, the initial way that businesses were run was, you know, this very hyper-masculine way that was very much of a hierarchy and very rigid and, you know, rule-oriented. And that the more we have women coming into the workforce that are becoming leaders, that, you know, women leaders instead delegate and they ask their whole team their opinion. And it's like everybody brings their truth to the table. What is their authentic truth? And it sounds like exactly what they were saying way back then about how business was shifting as more women came in is the way kink is shifting. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and when I say this, I definitely am not poo-pooing people who follow traditional rules. What I'm poo-pooing is the insistence that everyone else must follow your traditional rules too. Like if that's what you choose to do, cool. That's the kink that feels authentic to you and you found it and that's great. Just recognize that's your personal preference and not necessarily everybody else's. I mean, it's not shocking that within the kink community that sometimes you would run up and find people that are trying to control not just maybe their sub, but the whole community. <laughs> you know, because it is very much about power dynamics, isn't it? Exactly. And, you know, kind of going off that history and the how we got here, as we enter into the 90s and the 2000s, the original BDSM community that started from the the gay male leather community way back when started becoming more and more hetero, you know, cis, het, very traditional stereotypes. The man is the dominant and the woman is the submissive. And even though... We all like to say, you know, us as being part of the community that is accepting of everyone, straight, gay, pansexual, whatever. We all like to say, oh, yes, we're very open minded. And of course, gender roles. No, 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 no. But if you look at the influence of that kink community, it is very if you're a man, you're a dominant and you must be aggressive and mean and cruel. And if you're a woman, you must be. Those are the undertones, even though we may not say it out loud. That's exactly what the community is teaching people. And most people who practice kink, they aren't involved in a community at all. They just do their own thing, whatever. A very small percentage of the overall kinky pie is like involved in community events and goes to dungeons and does all the things. But the problem is... It is people from that community and people who are heavily influenced from that community philosophy that have the websites, that write the books, that have, you know, that have distributed all of this educational material that have influenced popular culture, Fifty Shades of Grey, movies from vanilla producers trying to portray kink. So even though there's all this talk of me right now, like community, community, and someone might be listening going, yeah, I'm kinky, but I've never been to a community event in my life. That doesn't affect me. It does. That has influenced the whole subculture. And, you know, if you're kinky with your spouse at home and you just do some bedroom fun and you want to buy a book on Amazon about kink or you want to look up a couple of blogs or a couple of articles, 
all of that information is influenced from that very traditionalist community vibe and even the books that people recommend. And these are books that are written by educators that I admire. Like I'm not, you know, saying they're horrible people, but there's some information in those books that they are foundations. They will stand the test of time, right? And there are other things that are very dependent on what was going on socially and generationally at the time when those books that are still classics today were written in the 90s that just don't apply anymore. And that, you know, like I said, that's not to diss the authors because I love them. They're awesome people. But things are different now, and we need some updating when it comes to education, when it comes to attitudes, when it comes to inclusivity, when it comes to, you know, not just misogyny, but like racism, all the isms. There's so much. And when I think about BDSM community, if I think about my practice and I think about, you know, like, let's say people that identify as women in and out of my practice. If I were to say a general rule, this isn't based on research, but just what I tend to see, most women, whether they are dominant or submissive, usually seem pretty comfortable coming out with, you know, their orientation within the kink community, whether they're dom or submissive. But the men, you know, the men that are submissive, it feels like to me about 50% of the submissive men don't join community because they are sheepish about it. I agree. And that it's because the misogyny, the traditional views of sexuality, gender that were prevalent in the 80s and 90s. Think about general queer culture today compared to 1995, right? We've come a long way. We know about the gender, you know, we know gender's not a binary, it's a spectrum. We even in the last Five years, we have come so far in our understanding of identity and gender and sexuality and emotional intelligence and all of these things. And if we look at at still what the traditional values that kink ethos is based upon, it's still upon those 1980s and 90s values? Why? Why is the rest of the world, we're in the 21st century, and the kink, I don't know, undercurrents are still 25 years behind? Yeah. And and when I say sheepish, as I did a minute ago, in no way I meant to shame men that aren't joining community because they're nervous. I mean, I understand why they're nervous. They don't feel welcome along with a lot of other folks, you know, I I know that, you know, there's some people that are black or brown that don't feel welcome in the king community, or, or there's all these different groups that don't feel as welcome as they should. So what do you think the king community needs to do to make different people feel welcome? You know, stop upholding your one true wayisms. You know, which is hard because, again, as human beings, it is our human nature to cling to tradition. It makes us feel good to belong to something. So it's really hard for so- to say like, hey, I'm not dissing you valuing tradition. What I'm saying is don't force it on me. And a lot of people can't really wrap their mind around that and fight it. And it causes a lot of 
community strife and whatnot. So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do, you know, to shout kink is customizable from the rooftops. And a lot of people think when they hear, I I saw some criticism because I'll see some old school folks criticizing. I don't like this new way of how the kids are doing it with this customizable. And one of the criticisms is that means there's no rules. We need rules. And it's like, Okay, yes, I did say the only rule in kink that everybody must universally adhere to is consent. But guess what? Like when you break down consent, there are rules and benchmarks. And, you know, think about all of the things, all of the knowledge you have to require, all of the skills you have to acquire to be ethical, to be emotionally aware, to understand your partner's feelings and be compassionate. Like those are the real rules that we should be concentrating on, not Well, you can't buy your own leather. Oh, you're a submissive. You can't act like that. That's arbitrary. You know, (laughs) like what? So a lot of folks hear me say kink is customizable. The only rule is consent. And yeah, it's one word, consent. It's not very long. It seems simple. But when you dig down, it is really complex because the same ethics and skills that are behind the large umbrella of what's under consent are all of the things that we should have learned throughout our lives, but we have not. And therefore, you know, we are in therapy, reading self-help books, you know, going back and going, holy shit, I know nothing about even consent when it comes to like interacting with my family members and when am I pushing too hard or overstepping or violating their consent in not, you know, consent doesn't just have to do with sex. Consent has to do with every interaction you have with every human being all the time. So we're learning in kink, like, oh, we have to go back and learn all of those things we should have been learning our whole lives just to not be assholes to other people. Like, that is really what the rules in kink are about. Don't be assholes to other people. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, when they think about consent, like people that maybe haven't gone to a workshop or anything, they they have it just boiled down to like a sexual situation. Like, can I have penetrative sex with you? Yes, no. Okay, good. Now I've, I've done my due diligence. When really we could unpack like all kinds of different arenas where you can ask for consent. And then once we unpack that, then there's all these nuances about whether or not we've gotten a true consent, like whether the person is in a position to give you a true consent, like are they triggered? There's all these different situations where someone might actually, they might even be saying, yes, you can do this, but maybe they're they're not in a position to really give you a true consent. That's one thing that I had a lot of contention with in the kink community is understanding of consent, our definitions of consent, how how far we dig into consent. And, you know, our first top line consent is sort of what we all should learn, what they teach in high schools, what, you know, Planned Parenthood Fry's model, like consent is freely given, it's revocable, it's informed, F-R-I-E, it's enthusiastic, and it is specific, like cool. And that's really 
you know, the bare bones basics 101s. And, you know, there are different frameworks. I'm not going to get into the details, but there's different frameworks about how to apply consent to BDSM scenes. That's cool. But to your point, we have not addressed how do we overcome the pitfalls of what things might be skewing our own consent skewing our partner's consent that we're negotiating with, that's where a lot of our problems lie. Like, and I came up with, I have my new acronym that, you know, it's going to be in the book I've been teaching recently in my classes, which it's a weird acronym, but it's really hard to make acronyms work. It's possum. It's possum. So the consent possum, and it's spelled P-A-S-S-M. And it's, they're basically points. And, you know, within each point, I have different questions to ask yourself and things to evaluate. But the the acronym stands for to ev- in, evaluate the power imbalance between you and the person you're establishing consent with, because that definitely skews consent, your sense of agency, what things are, are skewing your ability to be in your power and have full agency. You know, what about the safety and trust you have with that partner? There's a whole analysis there. The support that you feel with that part, that's the other S, the support you feel with that partner in them empowering your consent decisions. And then the M is your motivation. What is motivating you to want to do this in the first place? And there's a whole analysis there. And if we just step back and look at the things like what's going on inside of me that is making me feel that maybe I have to answer a certain way and I'm sort of lying to myself, telling myself, that's the way I really feel, sure, that, but it's actually not. And how do I dig down deep enough to figure that out? And we haven't addressed that at all, not only in the kink community, in life, in the human community. We're really bad at this stuff. I love that. I love, you know, just all the, the pieces of possum. And uh, <laughs> that sounds gross. But while you were saying that, I'll have to say this. I was envision. I was totally listening to you, but I was picturing this t-shirt with, you know, like Sunny Megatron's possum. And in the middle, you're like, you have your elbows linked with your, with a cute little possum and everybody's wearing this t-shirt and everybody's learning about proper consent and what it means and everybody wants to be the cool kid wearing this t-shirt oh believe you me i already have big plans for the consent possum just you wait and the consent possum could be eating some fries so you know we got all the consent acronyms in one graphic that's awesome i'm telling you this is a t-shirt it's yeah it is it is yeah the consent possum you will be hearing more from the consent possum Yeah, I love that. You know, like the A, you know, agency. It's so important. And, you know, with so many people not really understanding things like dissociation or just the levels of being present in order to be able to have the agency to give a consent, you know, so many people don't understand that. And I think that's great that you're creating a system that that really helps that people understand how complex consent actually is. It really is. Like I say, when I go, the only rule in kink is consent. People are like, that's just one rule. Where are all the rules? I'm like, do you know how much that one rule involves? Like, it's a lot. It's like several universes inside of that. Yeah. So we could totally keep unpacking this or maybe we should wrap around and and think about these initial questions about, you know, like what kink internet trends do you see that are incorrect and what are horrible runaway trains and what you would you like to rewrite? You know, I'm just wondering if uh, 
we should kind of circle back and, and look at some of those things. Cause I'm sure like you're on TikTok all the time. I'm sure you're seeing all kinds of things and TikTok is amazing for information and other times not so much. Different people get their information different places. So like there's TikTok, there's FetLife, there's even Facebook groups, like all sorts of local communities, you name it. And each one has their different flavor. You know, if right now on TikTok, some of the things that are trending is like every submissive is a brat and there's a a new term called a pleasure dom, like a dominant who's tender, who focuses on pleasure. And if you are exposed to kink in, let's say, that one corner of the internet and you go out to a different community going, I'm a pleasure dom. And they're like, I've never heard of that. What the hell are you talking about? Um, So there's this illusion that whatever corner of the internet you learn about kinky things in, it's the same everywhere. And it's absolutely not. You know, there are on social media, social media is driven by trends and memes and it's the trendification or memification of kink. So the social media bites of kink, they're fun. They're entertaining. They're a nice step in the door, kind of like Wikipedia's nice exposure, but don't base your research paper off of it. And then also, this is a hard one to come up with a solution for, but because people who call themselves kink educators have no benchmarks no credentials. There's no way to know, like, if you call yourself an educator and you say you have all this experience, how do we know it's true? Okay. So there's a lot of people going, well, I have this fancy blog and you can, you know, it doesn't cost much to have a really snazzy looking blog or to even self-publish a little book or whatever. And people tout themselves as these experts. And sometimes it's just purely out of, you know, nothing malicious, not like they're trying to be somebody they aren't. They just maybe think they, you know, it's like what the Dunning-Kruger effect, you don't know what you don't know. They think like, I know everything. And they put out some really dangerous or misleading information. So if you're a new person looking at the internet, you don't know how to easily identify what is good information and what isn't good information. And then we have the phenomenon of the circular reference, which one person says a thing, on the internet. And oftentimes it can be someone who appears credible. Maybe somebody who does have letters behind their name says something wrong or says something dangerous. And then people pick it up and people pick it up. And that becomes the new definition kind of everywhere. And I don't want to give the impression that I think kink educators should have letters behind their name or credentials. And this is where I say there's no good answer. I do not believe that because I believe that gatekeeps, people who really have a lot to contribute, people who are of marginalized identities that maybe can't afford to purchase that education or go to that retreat or whatever, I don't want there to be any sort of credentialing or degree or certificate. But I also want people to somehow better be able to figure out how to identify good information versus not good information. There's not a great answer for that. I think until recently, this is what it's felt like to me, that until recently, for me and my journey of always learning more and more about kink, academia, people coming out of master's programs, et cetera, 
tended to be way too conservative. You know, the, the academic community tended to be so conservative that I really couldn't get educated from the academic community on kink. I, I did have, have to seek out people like you and Midori or, you know, friends like Hudzi Han, you know. I had to learn that way by going to, to classes by sex educators. And that's how I learned. And I have these people coming up that are in master's programs saying, well, how did you learn things? And they want to hear that I learned from some academic program. And, you know, that's just not what was available to me at the time. It is getting better now, but uh, for a long time, the academic world was failing us in terms of providing good information. And the academic world is still failing us. You know, I, I again, I don't want to poo-poo academia. There's some great research that has come out, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also been some dangerous misinformation. And, you know, one uh, example, and I'll keep it vague because I don't want to, like, throw people under the bus, but the very popular researcher made a an incorrect statement about kink on a popular website that hit number one for that search term when you put it in, everybody said, well, that's what this thing is. Totally not. And so now- It was the go-to psychology site. Yes. Uh, yeah, psychology today. So now there's very dangerous information about there. And, and just to, don't want to like, because I'll have to do a lot of explaining if I get really into it. But it's about consensual non-consent, which is basically any type of play where you say no as part of your play and someone like, pushes you or, and that's why we have safe words, you know, because sometimes no doesn't mean no. And it could be as simple as like, I'm going to make you eat your carrots, like as a dominant. And the submissive's like, no, I don't want to. And then I'm like, you better eat your carrots or I'm going to spank you. And I'm going to, no, but I don't want to. No, you better. Okay, fine. I'll eat my carrots. It can be as simple as that. Whereas most people think of rape situation, you know, like rape scenarios, ravishment scenarios. Exactly. The definition from that article turned into consensual non-consent is only and always like graphic rape reenactments where the submissive is not allowed to have a safe word. Dangerous as all get out because that is assault. That's not kink if you can't have a safe word. That is just non-consent. It's not consensual non-consent. And that's not even the only way to play consensual. You can do it many different ways. But just that little soundbite from a very popular website spread through the internet like wildfire. And now I see 18-year-olds that are dabbling into kink reenacting these traumatic events and saying like this is beginner kink right and I'm like oh my god no <laughs> like no 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 and it's become because of social media and those trends people want to one-up each other like oh I'm super kinky I do CNC so then other people want to do it that sort of thing and and also social media has made it where it skews what credibility is because somebody has a bunch of followers and they seem charismatic doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. But those are now the folks that are starting to create this new bulk or new pool of information about kink that is permeating the entire Internet where most people do their research that is like it's not based in reality at all. And a lot of it's dangerous. Yeah, especially if you're super young and super new and you don't know how to protect yourself yet. 
So that's really difficult for, you know, people who are new into kink, who are like, hey, can you tell me what blog to visit? Can you tell me what book to pick up? Right now, there isn't one. It's like, okay, well, you can pick up this one book and like the couple chapters on this are cool, but ignore the parts where they say that and then pick up this other book and, you know, these chapters are good. There's not one place that cuts through all the bullshit. So that's what I am trying to create because I haven't seen it anywhere. And it's, people are getting hurt. They're getting misled. They are getting into dangerous situations because kink is also something that predators can misappropriate. A lot of people think like, oh, kink has all these rules about consent and ethics. So it is this utopia community or utopia style of of sex and relationships. It is not. Kinky people are humans and a lot of humans are jerks and they're abusive and awful. And kink is no different. Kink is just like any other cross-section of our society. And You know, when people get into kink and they're excited, you know, like let's say you're, and I see this a lot with women submissives who learn about kink and they're really excited and they read some of the blogs and they read some of the, you know, dangerous things like, oh, beginner kink is reenacting your assault, which is not. And then they, under the impression that the only way that they can do kink is if they find a romantic partner that they, you know, get into an ongoing relationship or dynamic with. And that's what they need to find to be kinky. So they're very excited. They have this frenzy like kid in a candy store. They go find somebody who says all of the right things and who has all of the the one true wayisms. Well, did you know if you're a true submissive, you wouldn't question your master, so you shouldn't question me when yada yada yada, right? And these are also the same people that are printing blogs and making content and making it look like these rules are legitimate. So then these people end up getting into really dangerous situations because they didn't even know that the red flags were red flags because these folks have painted red flags as like thumbs up. This is the way kink is supposed to be because it's to their advantage. So that is terrifying to me. And that's a huge reason that calls me to do this work, to teach, to write these books, because it's like, you don't need that to be kinky. Like, if you want that, that's great. If you want to get into like a romantic dynamic, with but a lot of people think that's their only choice and they rush into it. The sense that I get with kink, I mean, there's no perfect pathway to keep yourself completely safe. But I have seen in my private practice these guys who say that they're a dom and they will tell, you know, they'll get a new partner and they'll tell their partner, well, I don't want to be part of the community. I just want to do this with you. And they, they'll isolate them and they'll just start doing all the things that you know are abuse. But the, the partner is just so enraptured with this dom that has them isolated. And then all this abuse happens. And I I think that you do have a better chance at having a a healthy kink relationship when you are connected with the kink community, when you can run things by other people. And I would also say is don't assume that if somebody's like a famous pro-dom or whatever, 
that that person is necessarily the the healthy person. Like use your instincts and decide what does your gut tell you and also run it by other people. But at the end of the day, you really have to check in with your gut and make your own decision about whether someone is a safe person. And that's common, you know, to see people in positions of authority or you know, semi-celebrity in their community that everyone looks up to them. There's some kind of leader. And to think like, well, they wouldn't be so respected and, you know, such high visibility in their community if they were horrible people. And oftentimes, you know, it's like what the, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Oftentimes, yeah, it is those folks. And like, you know, that's one of the many reasons, possum right there. It's like, that power imbalance, you may say, and you know, it's like, I'm not saying that anytime there is some sort of power imbalance between partners, it's a bad thing, but that's something you need to stop and go, are there red flags around that? Is that something that is maybe putting stars in my eyes and skewing my ability to really read the intuition and the gut signals that I'm getting because I'm so dazzled by this person who is like so well-respected in the kink community? And on the flip side, there's a lot of folks who are in that position of power, let's say in their community, there's lots of different positions of power you can be in, even if it's like you're a cis man and you're playing with a woman of color right there. There's another power imbalance and you need to analyze all of those like slices of power imbalance. But a lot of folks who, you know, on the upper end of that hierarchy. They have more of the power in that sense. They don't realize they have it. And maybe they are acting in their best interest or what they think is in their best interest, but there's just something they don't see. Maybe they are doing something a little bit fucked up. Maybe they are abusing their power, but sometimes we can have the best of intentions and still do shitty abusive stuff and not realize we're doing it. And, you know, I've talked to folks who have been in that position, like, oh my God, I didn't even realize that I was being abusive or I was being, now I I feel, I didn't see it. And I'll talk to those folks and be like, so you didn't see the power imbalance? Well, no. Like, I do, I know people look up to me or they think I'm this, you know, wonderful da-da-da or I'm an educator or I'm a this or I'm a that. But I just feel like a regular person. I don't feel like I have. But it's like you need to look at it from the other person's eyes. You know, even if you don't feel like you have the power, you do. So those, you know, that's just like one little tiny slice of things that can skew people's ability to consent and have full awareness of the situation. Well, it goes back to what you always hear about privilege, that a lot of times a privileged person does not see the water that they swim in. Exactly. And I firmly, you know, in my teachings, I said, you know, the more privilege that you have in that relationship, the more it is on you to do self-examination. So that could be the privilege of having the power in that relationship. So maybe that power imbalance skews your negotiation and your, you know, consent giving. It might be if you are a straight cis white man who is dominant and you dom women. And maybe even like, I know a lot of like, you know, straight white guys who are doms and oftentimes their partners are people of color. Like they're serial daters of people of color. 
I'm not going to say just by looking at you, there's something wrong about that. But I'm saying what I am going to say is you better have done some good self-examination to make sure there's not something wrong about your motivations for putting yourself in a position of power over people that you're in a position of power over in real life who are marginalized. And now you're reenacting that in your kink. Those are the times that I say, you know, I said in the last episode, we don't always have to ask why we have our kinks. Like sometimes it's a turnoff. It's a buzzkill. Like I don't want to psychoanalyze myself. But when you're the one on the top of the privilege ladder, that's when you have to ask yourself why. You have to analyze, why are you doing this? Are you doing this because it feels good to reenact that oppression? And because that's not healthy. Or are you doing it for other reasons? Because there are many legitimate reasons you could be doing it. You know, I'm not saying all male doms are bad. No, not at all. It's all in your motivation. Why are you doing this? And one thing that I've noticed, the more privileged a person is, the more they have a tendency to pick their own navel. And yes, you need to analyze yourself, but you also need to have conversations with the people that you're thinking about having as your submissive, especially if it's, you know, like in the case of a black or brown person or a black or brown woman, like having conversations with them, but also trying to understand their experience from a sociological level, not that any particular person is a monolith, you know, like black people aren't a monolith, but understanding it from the dynamics from a sociological level as well, I think can help you understand the implications of what you're thinking about doing. And that's a lot of work. Like, you know, again, we go back to when I say there's really only one rule in kink we have to adhere to, that's consent. And on the surface, it sounds simple. But again, when you dig into the meat of that, it's all of this stuff. And this stuff is way more challenging to figure out than the arbitrary one true wayism rules of if you call yourself a this kind of submissive, you have to act this way, or you know, you have to be of service to your community in this type of way, or you're not a blah blah blah. Who cares about that bullshit? That's not, you know, the point of why we're doing this. It's cool if y'all agree, like we're gonna adhere to these rules because they feel good. But you still gotta do this work, which is work. And, you know, when people hear this, I I hope like listeners aren't like, oh, shit, I thought kink was just I get to wear a sexy outfit and have some orgasms to be blindfolded. This sounds worse than therapy. What? Uh (laughs) And it's like, sorry, womp, womp. Um, You know, it's like, what do we do? We we string you in unknowingly with the sexiness and the blindfolds and then we get you with the emotional intelligence. (laughs) Well, I mean, I will have to say, although I I know that sometimes in these episodes when we talk about this, I, I sometimes talk about, you know, the times that it ends up being abuse. But I mean, just as much, I've had clients and friends that have told me stories of, that, of wonderful things that have happened within kink, you know, falling in love with your, their dream kinky partner or discovering their truth regarding kink. And, you know, I've had people crying with joy when they find their authentic truth. So although these other things can happen that can injure a person, There's all these other joyful things that can happen when it goes right. And I will have to say that 
for the most part, most of my clients that maybe have had some bad things happen, like maybe they have a bad, they chose a dom who turned out to be abusive and they had to heal from that. A lot of them did not draw the conclusion that kink is not for me. They drew the conclusion of, I need to understand my boundaries better. I need to understand who's safe versus who's not safe. And usually the very next partner they choose is a bazillion times kinder with more emotional intelligence. So they don't end up walking away from kink because they get injured. They end up walking away from the wrong kind of person and they choose better in the future. I think part of it is like they learned the hard way that all the rules that they thought were the rules the first time around were bullshit. And it's like, if I can save people from having to learn that the hard way and to maybe enter into that first dynamic with some of these skills, you know, and really the first dynamic or the first person you negotiate with is yourself. Like if you haven't done the self-work and and you haven't And I'm not going to say, like, in order to do kink, you have to be a perfect boundary setter. You can't do it. That's not true. But at least you need to know where your pitfalls are. You need to walk into it going, I know I'm a piss poor boundary setter. (laughs) I suck at this. From a lot of submissives. You know, it's like when I first, way back in 2011, I talked to a site. So I've been a therapist since 2003, started my private practice working with the kink community in 2011. It was around that time that I talked to a psychotherapist way older than me that worked with the kink community. And he said, you know, with my subby clients, One of the main things I work with them on is assertiveness because so many submissive people have a hard time with, you know, they lose their voice and sometimes they're not assertive. And I found that to be true a lot of times. And, you know, that's a big part of the work that I do. And it's a big part of staying safe and having a happy kinky life rather than a harmful one. And right there, that's the A in possum agency. And the thing about being submissive, which I love, is You know, on the surface, it seems like, well, you're the one that has to bend to somebody else's rules and you don't get a voice and it's not empowering or what. It actually is empowering because outside of your scene, outside of your dynamic, you are empowered to have that agency to make those decisions. And even within the scene, if you want to, you know, in the middle, revoke consent and say, nope. I want this to stop. I'm calling my safe word. I'm asserting a boundary. Hey, something's changed. Sorry. I'm going to speak up for myself. And as a dominant, I always tell dominance that even if your style of domination is like mean and cruel and blah, the undercurrent is you should always be empowering your submissives. It's about empowerment. We look at, I'll Cut this short because I know we're we're like, you know, we've talked a lot, but there's a misunderstanding, I think, of power, not only in kink, but in the, the greater world, that power is only oppressive, cruel, you know, like the dad, like, because I said so, I'll give you something to cry about. That that's power, that like in order for me to have power, I have to demean, destroy, oppress. I have to take that power from somebody else. Again, that's starting to lean towards abuse, not Exactly. And that's one type of power. And if we are consensually play acting that power, that's cool. As long as it's consensual and we know it's, you know, part of the role play. But what people don't often see is 
the positive kind of power, the I am going to use my power to help lift somebody up, to empower, to make sure everybody is taken care of and everybody feels good and everybody has what they need. And sometimes we give that empowering kind of positive power to somebody through play acting, the oppressive power. But you know, through the aftercare and the bigger context of what we've done, not just what that moment of play looks like, we are actually still empowering when we look at the big picture. And I think that's what a lot of people miss. I mean, it may even transcend into, I think I heard you talking about this in one of your TikToks about helping someone who's trying to run a a marathon and you're their dom and you're helping them (laughs) complete some kind of task through being a dom. And you can do it in a fun way. Like there, there's no reason it has to be like, oh, da, da, da. like I like to make this stuff fun, make it a game, Ma- you know, like the sky's the limit. You can make up whatever rules you want. Like I just made up a scenario about like how to get through, uh, what is it? The November writing NaNoWriMo, you know, and to like have your dom do- make it a fun game, you know, and really the sky's the limit. Let's see. So now we have gone, we've talked a little bit about the P in possum power, the A in possum agency. And then I think S is safety, right? We've talked about safety a good bit. And then the second S is what? Support. Support. So do you feel supported by your partner in your consent decision? So like, if you say, no, I am holding a boundary, Do you feel that they are going to empower you in that and say, you know, thank you for taking care of yourself. Thank you for saying no. I'm not going to act like a four-year-old and be upset because you said no to my thing. Do you feel that they can support you in whatever decisions you make, even if it's something that is shutting down what they might want? And so many people are still learning to do that. It's rare for me to hear someone assert a boundary and have someone come back and say, Thank you for taking care of yourself. Every now and then I run into witnessing that, but it's still relatively new. Well, one thing I I heard somewhere is consent is not anti-you, it's pro-me. So like if somebody tells you no, they're not doing it because they want you to feel bad. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them. And that's a good thing. And we just need to not be so selfish and be like, it's about me. It's because you hate me, right? It's because you don't want me to be happy. No, it's nothing to do with you. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Or a lot of times what I hear in the non-monogamous community is the person that is hearing the boundary sometimes thinks, oh, well, you're taking my freedom away. And it's like, and that's not always what's going on. Sometimes it's the person is just trying to take care of themselves. Okay. So that second S Tell me what the second S was again. It's It's support. So do you feel supported in in your consent decisions, even when they're difficult by your partner? Okay. So power, agency, safety, support, and then the M? Motivation. Why the hell are you doing this? Because that, I mean, right there can unlock so much. Are you doing this because you really want to do this? Are you doing this out of obligation? Are you doing that, you know, for 80 gazillion reasons, that's you know, really key to a lot of this. Yeah. Because if your motivation is in the right place, then again, it kind of feeds into 
yeah, that completely feeds into consent, right? Because if your motivation, if you're doing it for someone else or because you feel pressured or something like that, then that's not a true consent. But if you're doing it because it's a hell yes, or you want to have an erotic experience, or you want to grow, or you want to play, or, or something positive, then that sounds like a healthy consent. And also, you know, when we think about motivation and we think about the reasons why we are either initiating consent or responding to somebody's consent request, there is, you know, you can look at it as a give and take, like the person asking wants something for themselves and they will take from you to get it. Like that's not healthy. Or is this consent decision desire driven by both of you? It's really about like figuring out where your desires are and matching that up so you can mutually co-create an experience that's good for both of you. So like, you know, a lot of the motivation can be asking yourself, do I just really freaking want this? And I don't really care about what the other person wants, or I'm not looking hard enough to figure out where our desires match up. And maybe I have to compromise a little on what I want. I have to modify it a little. But if we negotiate it, we can come up with something that suits both of us and feels good to both of us. Or is my motivation just like, I've always wanted to enact this fantasy and I want you to fulfill it for me. There's a whole bunch of like different questions and prompts that I have under each of these that, you know, that's a teaser for my book. It'll all be in there. Maybe I'll get some workbook pages going. It's a whole, just, just you wait. The consent possum will un- unravel it all. Well, I'll have to say that, you know, just this whole conversation today, it's, it's reminded me of something I learned when I was a little baby munchkin therapist in training way back in like maybe 2003. And they talk about the identified patient. And, you know, the identified patient might be that child in a family of five that learns that the parents don't argue anymore when he pees in his pants. But then that child gets labeled as the identified patient when really he's not the the sole problem. There's all kinds of problems within the family system. And it almost feels like 50 shades of gray ended up being kind of the identified patient. Like everybody was like, Everything became a shit show after 50 shades of gray, you know, but in actuality, there's been some issues that need to be addressed going way back, perhaps. And, you know, it sounds like your book is going to really address a, a lot of the issues and really bring out the fun in kink because kink is just this, you know, so many universes of fun and exploration and growth when it's healthy and good. And it feels like your book is really going to lay that out and how to do that and kind of reel back some of the negative stuff that it's gotten out in our culture and create a new framework that can set people up for so much psychological fun and exploration and growth and creativity. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Like, I'm still writing it. (laughs) Like, well, I hope it turns out that way. I know it will because I know you. I I know it's going to be amazing. And if there's things that you forget, you can do a part two. Exactly. Like second edition. Exactly. Well, I can't wait to wear my my sunny Megatron possum shirt. I am like waiting for that. And I just want to say you thank you for giving us all of your wisdom in this episode. Oh, thank you. You have so much wisdom to give. And listeners, we're going to be taking a break 
in the month of December and we're going to come back sometime in January. But don't you worry, we'll be coming back with a whole bunch of kinky fun and more stories and more adventures and all kinds of good stuff in 2022. So please stick with us when we come back. And thank you, Sunny, so much for everything that you taught us today. And listeners, I hope you join us again in January when again we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.